And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnell. This is the Ken Hudnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, it is February the 16th. And internationally, we got quite a brouhaha going on. Uh, the Egyptian army has moved to the border with Israel. Um, could have a shooting war at any moment. Uh, all because Hamas doesn't want Israel to exist. Well, when you look at... Um, well, as I was saying, if you look at the international situation, there's not much doubt we're going to wind up in a World War III before long. When you've got fanatics and idiots running various countries... Um, <clears throat> the Iranians funding every lunatic revolutionary they can find. It's going to blow up. There's no way around it. But in the meantime, today is February 16th, 47th day of the year. 318 days remain till the year's over with. And then we'll do it all over again, assuming any of us are still here. Well, this is National Nobody Eats Alone Day. You know, loneliness at school can be tough. Find somebody alone and sit down with them. Maybe they'll buy you lunch. Innovation Day. National Almond Day. National Do a Grouch Your Favorite Day. National Tim Tam Day. National Tartar Sauce Day. Random Acts of Kindness Week, Take Your Family to School Week, International Flirting Week, National Jello Week, Children of Alcoholics Awareness Week, Great American Pizza Bake, National Nest Box Day, I'm sorry, National Next Box Week, National Condom Week, Shove a Few in Your Pocket, National Secondhand Wardrobe Week, National Cardiac Rehabilitation Week, National Kraut and Frankfurt Week, Freelance Writers Appreciation Week, Birth Dates, The Weekend, Elizabeth Olson, one of my favorite people, Ice-T, and Mehershala Ali. <coughs> then we got National Black History Month, Canned Food Month, National Snack Food Month, National Children's Dental Health Month, Harley Quinn Month, National Embroidery Month, National Grapefruit Month, National Women Inventors Month, Great American Pie Month, International Vegan Cuisine Month, American Heart Month, National Cherry Month, National Bake for Family Fun Month, National Bird Feeding Month, National Hot Breakfast Month, National Library Lovers Month, Low Vision Awareness Month, National Fasting February, and North American Inclusion Month. All that having been said, at 12.49, Andrew of Longjumeau is dispatched by Louis IX of France as an ambassador to meet with the Kagan of the Mongol Empire. 12.70, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania defeats the Livonian Order in the Battle of Carus. Now, the Livonian Order, for those who are not familiar with it, 
is an autonomous branch of the Teutonic Order. They're the Germanic version of the Knights Templar. Um, it was formed in 1237, and for a time it was a member of the Livonian Confederation. Order was formed from remnants of the Livonian Brothers of the Sword after their defeat by Samogitians in uh, 1236 at the Battle of uh, Sholin. Incorporated into Teutonic Knights, became known as Livonian Order in 1237. Summer of that year, the master of Prussia, Hermann Bach, rode into Riga and installed his men as council commanders and administrators of Livonia. Always somebody wants to be in charge. 1630, Dutch forces led by Hendrik Lonk capture Olinda and what was uh, become part of Dutch Brazil. 1646, Battle of Torrington in Devon. Last major battle of the First English Civil War. The Roman Emperor, recognizing the Greek Catholic clergy, enjoyed the same privileges as Roman Catholic priest in the Principality of Transylvania. 1742, Spencer Compton, Earl of Wilmington, becomes British Prime Minister. 1796, Colombo and Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, falls to the British, completing their invasion of Ceylon. 1804, First Barbary War. Stephen Decatur leads a raid to burn the pirate hell frigate USS Philadelphia. 17, uh, 1862, American Civil War. General Ulysses S. Grant captures Fort Donaldson in Tennessee. 1866, Spencer Compton Cavendish, Marquis of Harrington, becomes British Secretary of State for War. 1881, the Canadian Public Railway is incorporated by Act of Parliament at Ottawa. 1899, Iceland's first football club. Nats by Mufugalang. Rexavikur is founded. 1900, the Southern Cross Expedition led by Karsten Bortsgevink saves a new furthest south of 78 degrees 50 seconds, making it the first landing at the Great Ice Barrier. 1916, Council of Lithuania. Anonymously adopts the Act of Independence, declaring Lithuania an independent state. On this date, 1923, Howard Carter unseals the barrel chamber of Pharaoh to Tank Amun. 1930, the Romanian Football Federation joins FIFA. 1934, the Austrian Civil War ends with the defeat of the Social Democrats in the Republic Kennischer Schutzbund. 1936, the Popular Front wins the 1936 Spanish general election. 1937, Wallace Carruthers gets a U.S. patent for nylon. 1940, World War II, Altmark incident. German tanker Altmark is boarded by sailors from the British destroyer HMS Cossack. Total of 299 British prisoners are freed. They'd been hidden on the tanker. 1942, World War II in Athens, the Greek People's Liberation Army is established. Also in 1942, World War II, the attack on Aruba. First World War II, German shots fired on a land-based object in the Americas. 1943, World War II, early phases of the Third Battle of Kharkov, the Red Army troops re-entered the city. 1945, World War II, American forces land on Corregidor Island in the Philippines. 
1945, the Alaska Equal Rights Act of 1945, the first anti-discrimination law in the U.S. was signed into law in this state. 1959, Fidel Castro becomes premier of Cuba after dictator Fugencio Batista is overthrown in, uh, on January 1st. 1960, U.S. Navy submarine USS Triton begins Operation Sandblast, setting sail from New London, Connecticut, to begin the first submerged circumnavigation of the globe. 1961, Explorer Program. Explorer 9 is launched. 1962, the Great Sheffield Gale impacts the UK, killing nine people. The city of Sheffield is devastated with 150,000 homes damaged. 1962, flooding in the coastal areas of West Germany kills 315, destroys the homes of about 60,000 people. 1968, in Haleyville, Alabama, the first 911 emergency telephone system goes into service. 1968, Civil Air Transport Flight 010 crashes near Shangsan Airport in Taiwan, kills 21 of the 63 people on board and one more on the ground. And as I've said many times, if you have a plane fall on you, you're having a really bad day. 1978, the first computer bulletin board system is created. That's the CBBS in Chicago. 1983, Ash Wednesday bushfires in Victoria and South Australia kill 75. 1985, Hezbollah is founded. And somebody asked me the other day, what exactly did Hezbollah stand for? It's the party of Allah, or the party of God. It's a Lebanese Shia Islamist political party militant group, led since 1992 by its Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah. Paramilitary wings the Jihad Councils, political wings and loyalty to the resistance bloc party in the Lebanese parliament. Established in the wake of the 1982 Lebanon War by Lebanese clerics who studied the Shia seminaries, uh, Hausa Nassar and uh, in Dajjaf, adopted the model set out by Ayatollah Khomeini after the Iranian Revolution in 1979. And, in fact, Khomeini chose the name for Hezbollah. 1986, the Soviet liner M.S. Mikhail Lermontov runs aground in the Marlboro Sounds in New Zealand. 1986, China Airlines Flight 2265 crashes into the Pacific Ocean near Pinghu Airport in Taiwan. Killed all 13 people on board. 1991, Nicaraguan Contras leader Enrique Bermudez is assassinated in Managua. 1996, Chicago-bound Amtrak train to Capital Limited collides with a MARC commuter train bound for Washington, D.C. killed 11 people. 1998, China Airlines Flight 676 crashes into a road and residential area near uh, Chiang Kai-shek International Airport in Taiwan. Killed all 196 people on board and seven more on the ground. 2000, Emory Worldwide Airlines Flight 17 crashes near Sacramento Mather Airport in Rancho Cordova, California, killed all three people on board. 2005, the Kyoto Protocol comes into force following its ratification by Russia. Now, for those who are not familiar with the Kyoto Protocol, it's an international treaty extended to the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that uh, commits state parties to reduce greenhouse gas emissions based on the scientific consensus that global warming is occurring and it's human-made. Well, I 
questioned that, but who am I? 2005, the National Hockey League cancels the entire 2004-2005 regular season and the playoffs. 2006, the last Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, or MASH, unit is decommissioned by the U.S. Army. 2013, a bomb blast in a market in Hazara Town in Quetta, Pakistan, kills more than 80 people and injures 190 others. And in 2021, 5,000 people gathered in the town of Karata, Bahasia province, to mark the two-year anniversary of the Iraq protest movement. Demonstrations have been suspended because of the COVID-19 pandemic in Algeria. But, you know, 5,000 people, that's nothing to sneeze at. All righty. Well, we were talking yesterday about um, haunted houses and uh, ghost towns. And I made mention of the fact that uh, we're going to talk about Virginia City and Nevada City in Montana. Now, Minnesota businessman Charles Beauvais was fascinated with the history of these two towns. So he restored 12 of the structures in Nevada City, expanded it by saving buildings from around the state and relocating them. There's a train today runs between Virginia City and Nevada City. Well, it was May 26, 1863. Instead of fighting in Civil War, six prospectors were in southwestern Montana, and they found one of the richest gold department deposits in North America history on the banks, banks of a narrow creek. Within a few weeks, nearly a dozen mining camps had sprung up along the 14 miles of Alder Gulch, and within a year, they were home to about 10,000 fortune hunters. Well, the richest of these gold camps became known as Virginia City. In 1865, the town was so influential, it was made the capital of the new Montana Territory. Virginia City's shanties and tents were replaced by permanent buildings and soon became home to Montana's first newspaper, public school, and the telegraph. Well, the other camps along the creek, Nevada City, about a mile and a half to the northwest, was uh, the most prominent. It actually had 2,000 citizens. The height of the Alder Gulch Gold Rush, Virginia City, and Nevada City were the region's centers of commerce. Well, as you might guess, prospectors weren't the only folks looking to strike it rich. Virginia City was a lawless and violent place in its early years. Outlaws, who were known as road agents, would rob and murder travelers along the gulches, trails, and roads. They were responsible for up to 100 deaths in 1863 and 1864 alone. The situation became so dire that a vigilance committee was established to deal with the problem. The Montana vigilantes hung more than a dozen road agents in response, including Henry Plummer, the alleged leader of the gang, as well as the sheriff of the nearby town of Bannock. Bad when the sheriff is one of the criminals. But I could tell you about the El Paso police. Graves of Plummer and four of his fellow road agents are in Virginia City's Boot Hill Cemetery. Nevertheless, the mining town's days were, of course, numbered. Within a few years of its founding, the amount of gold extracted from the, the gulch diminished and the population of Virginia, Virginia City began to decline. In 1880, there were only 624 people left there and by 1930, the number was down to 242. In the um, next decade, a wealthy Minnesota businessman and rancher and politician named Charles Beauvais, who was fascinated, as I said at the beginning of this segment, by uh, 
the history of these, uh, the town's history and Victorian architecture began preserving and restoring a lot of its buildings. Largely due to his efforts alone, more than 200 structures have been preserved for tourists. And you know he was looking for what he could make out of it. Well, place that I visited a time or two in my misspent youth, the state of Alabama, Cahaba. Well, there's a handful of crumbling structures that remain in Old Cahaba Archaeological Park. It's been preserved by the Alabama Historical Commission. You know, it was the first state capital established in 1819 at the confluence of the Alabama and the Cahaba Rivers. Built on the ruins of a new older ghost town, 16th century Native American settlement. And there were plans to build a state house on top of the remains of the previous village's old earthworks, but that never came to pass. Social and commercial center, Cahaba, was a major distribution point for uh, cotton grown in the area to be shipped down the Alabama River to the Port of Mobile. And although the state moved its capital to Tuscaloosa in 1826, Cahaba continued to grow into a thriving and wealthy river town. Rail line built in 1859 spurred further construction, most notably brick mansions and commercial buildings. By 1860, there were almost 2,000 people living there. Dallas County, which includes uh, Selma, Alabama, was the fourth wealthiest county per capita in the U.S. But the antebellum splendor of the Old South was ruined by the Civil War. Confederate government seized the town's railroad and removed the iron tracks to extend a different line nearby. The old railroad warehouse was converted into a prison that held 3,000 lice-infested Union prisoners of war. In 1865, a flood submerged the town. And a year later, the seat of Dallas County was permanently moved to Selma. People and businesses, of course, followed. And for a short time, Cahaba attracted uh, emancipated African Americans who used the abandoned courthouse for political meetings. But unfortunately, the new community didn't it wasn't long for this world. By 1870, the population diminished to only 300, and by the turn of the century, most of Cahaba's buildings had been torn down, burned down, or just decayed back into nature. Few structures survived past 1930, but there are remnants of uh, the old street plan, several wells and ruins of brick uh, commercial buildings and estates, including columns from one of the town's mansions. It's now known as the Old Cahaba Archaeological Park, site includes two cemeteries, a two-story residence that houses enslaved servants, and a reconstructed carpenter gothic church built in, a, in Cahaba in 1854, and 24 years later dismantled and moved 15 miles west to the town of Martin Station. Well, in 2008, the church was dismantled once again and moved back to Cahaba. And the town is, of course, home to at least one ghost story. The spirit of Colonel C.C. Pegus, a native of Cahaba, said to have returned to town in advance of news of his death in battle. A couple out for a walk one night saw a glowing, floating orb in the area of the Colonel's garden. People still visit Cahaba today in hopes of catching a glimpse of Pegu's ghost. You know, as... Um Somebody once said, apparently stories of his death were grossly exaggerated. Well, 
Let's go to the state of Alaska, which has just recently been claimed by the uh, country of Iran. Talk about Kennecott. You know, the Kennecott Mines, now under the control of the National Park Service, which is following what they call a light-touch approach to the site, preserving some things and allowing others to continue to slide into oblivion. You know, in the summer of 1900, two prospectors exploring the eastern edge of Kennecott Glacier happened to be on glean cliffs of exposed copper on a mountainside about 100 miles inland from the port town of Valdez. According to one of the men, it looked like a green sheep pasture in Ireland when the sun is shining at its best. Well, what they actually had discovered was one of the richest deposits of copper ore ever found. And within a few years, the Alaska Copper and Coal Company was building a concentration mill process the ore and extract the copper in the developing town at the base of the glacier. And the Copper River Northwestern Railway wouldn't even reach that site until 1911. So in order to begin operations, the company used horses and sled dogs to haul in equipment over the mountains, including entire steamships, piece by piece. Well, needing more money, Alaska Coal, Copper and Coal brought in New York business titans uh, Daniel Guggenheim and J.P. Morgan, reorganized as the Kennecott Mining Company. Mines continued to expand through the 1920s, and each site had its own self-sufficient camp with buildings for operating the mine and housing workers. And below them, the, the mill town grew into something more permanent. The largest structure in Kennecott was the 14-story concentration mill. Residential areas made of bunkhouses and individual cottages for mill workers and families developed on the edge of town. And most of the buildings, believe it or not, had into a plumbing and steam heat. A lot of the state of Arkansas didn't have that back in the 60s. Uh, there were churches, a school, and a hospital. Kennecott's height, about 600 men worked in the mines in the mill town. But then, discoveries of vast copper deposits in Chile combined with the deep uh, depredation of ore and economic turmoil of the Depression dealt a death blow to Kennecott. Railroad ceased operating in 1938. The mine closed down. Everybody left town. The company salvaged very little from the site. Today, Kennecott's empty, dominated by the dilapidated red buildings in the mill town. Most prominent among them is the old concentration mill that rises above the trees and looms over the landscape before it descends the hillside and a ramshackle stair-step fashion and ends in a row of buildings that include a power plant and a railroad depot. There are many who say it's quite a haunting view. Alaska's one of the few places I haven't wandered around. Don't want to be cold, don't you know? Well, let's talk about the town of Bannock in Montana. You know, about 40 structures remain standing in Bannock. Several constructed from logs, including the Masonic Lodge, which doubled as a schoolhouse. The town was designated a state park in 1954 with the Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Well, you know, the Montana Gold Rush began in July of 1862, and word spread of a big strike along the banks of Grasshopper Creek. And almost overnight, the mining town of Bannock was born. Within a year, more than 3,000 people moved into the area. Stores opened, dance halls, saloons, stables, meat markets, and hotels. They even had a bowling alley and a brewery. 1864, the town became the first capital of the new Montana Territory, although its 
Services the capital was brief. The capital's moved 50 miles east of Virginia City a year later. Among the first to arrive in Bannock was Henry Plummer, a man with a complicated past and a checkered past. 1856, he's elected marshal in Nevada City, California. But he also killed a man in what appeared to be an argument over the man's wife. Well, he was eventually convicted of second-degree murder and spent six months in 1859 in prison at San Quentin for, before being discharged because he suffered from tuberculosis. Returned to Nevada City, but then fled after killing another man in a brothel and eventually made his way to Bannock. Well, in Bannock, he was well-liked and eventually elected sheriff in 1863. Well, within months of Plummer's election, though, a number of robberies and murders along the roads of Alder Gulch, site of the Virginia City fine, had increased significantly, especially on the road between Virginia City and Bannock. Well, to deal with the problem, a vigilante committee was formed by citizens of Bannock and Virginia City, and the Montana vigilantes began hunting down that gang of road agents. Witness eventually identified Plummer as a member of the gang, and testimony of captured bandits soon named him the leader of the outfit. Well, he was captured and hung in January of 1864. Well, in spite of eradicating the, the road agent problem, Bannock's demise had already begun, although death didn't come quickly. As the gold became scarcer, people began to leave town, but new mining technologies kept the place hanging on well into the 20th century. When the post office closed in 1938, it became officially a ghost town. Sixteen years later, it was designated a state park, at which point the process of preservation and restoration began. And today, as I said at the beginning of the segment, there are 40 structures, some made of lumber and logs, and some made of bricks, still standing inside the town city limits. Wabana well, can come to be known as a hub of paranormal activity, and reports have included the sound of crying children in a house where the Town's younger citizens were quarantined due to illness. And then the Brick Hotel Mead building is also said to host the demon. In October every year, the town hosts what they call the annual ghost walk, where you can go out and walk with a ghost. Well, from um, Montana, let's go to Texas. City of Terlinga. Among the remnants of the buildings in Terlinga is a church. The town was deserted after mining operations ceased in the 1940s, and today it's a tourist attraction as well as the site of an international chili cook-off that draws more than 10,000 people every November. You know, it's situated in the Chihuahuan Desert at the edge of the Big Bend National Park, about 10 miles north of Santa Elena Canyon in the Rio Grande in southwest Texas. It's remote and rugged, sitting on top of a hard scrabble sun-baked soil dotted by scrubby shrubs and low-slung mesquite trees. Quicksilver was discovered in the area in the 1880s, and several mining complexes began operation. Unlike the gold rush meccas of the American West that sprang up overnight, the growth of Tolinga was more gradual. Populations swelled over the next 25 years or so from several hundred to over a thousand at its height during World War One, the town had more than 2,000 residents. Well, in actuality, there have been three different Terlingas, all at the southern tip of one of Texas' least populated counties. The original Mexican village was Terlinga Creek. That was just three miles north of the Rio Grande. 
When mining operations began about 10 miles to the north, the Marfa and Mariposa camp became known as Tolinga. When it closed in May of 1910, the Tolinga Post Office moved 10 miles to the east to the Cecil's Mining Company camp. Founded in 1903 by Chicago industrialist uh, Howard Perry, the Chisos became one of the uh, country's leading producers of quicksilver over the next 30 years. After around the outbreak of World War I, Chisos miners discovered an especially rich vein of cinnabar ore. And as military demand for mercury increased, the company's profits grew, and so did Terlinga. town boasted a company-owned commissary and a hotel, a school, a company doctor, Telephone service and a reliable water supply, which in Texas was something to be said. Perry built a mansion for himself, a nine-bedroom Morris estate on top of a hill. Now, production in Perry's mine began to decline during the 1930s, and in October, on October 1, 1942, the Chisos Mining Company filed for bankruptcy. By the end of World War II, all mining operations had ceased and people left the area. Tolinga became a ghost town. Well, today, the primary industry in Tolinga is tourism. Visitors come to the area to go to Big Bend National Park or to hike in the Cecil's Mountains. Towns scattered with the ruins of a church, mining structures, an old hotel, and Perry's mansions. Also, a miner's graveyard with simple stonework, wooden crosses, and tin can funeral wreaths. And because the soil so rocky, most bodies were buried under a round pile of stones rather than Buried six feet under. Who knows? You may see the stones move and the bodies get up. All things are possible in Texas. Well, from Texas, let's go to the state of California. What's left of it? Talk about the town of Bodie. Bodie's more than 170 remaining structures are kept today in a state of arrested decay. Now, they can't feed their people or give them homes to live in, but the state of California repairs roofs and foundations and windows and interior framing, but does as little as possible to the building's exteriors. The town was founded in 1859 after two prospectors, Waterman Bodie and Black Taylor, discovered a small amount of gold in the hills north of Mono Lake. That's about 180 miles east of San Francisco. It was named after Bodie, but the spelling was changed to avoid mispronunciation. Uh, about 16 years later, the mine cave in revealed a rich strike of gold ore, and the rush was on. Bodie was transformed from a sleepy mining camp into a boomtown. Well, by the late 1870s, early 1880s, the population of Bodie had swelled to nearly 10,000. And the town boasted more than 60 saloons and dance halls, as well as a red light district on Bonanza Street. It also had a Chinatown, complete with general stores and homes and boarding houses and a restaurant and a Taoist temple. At the town's peak, several hundred Chinese lived in Bodie. But as with all booms, mining returns uh, soon began to diminish, as did Bodie's population. 1892, big fire burned many homes and buildings. Forty years later, another destroyed nearly 90% of the town. Post office closed in 1942, and in 1950, census, Bodie officially had zero residents. town was designated a National Historical Landmark in 1961, became a California State Park in 1962. And be an interesting place to explore, certainly. I mean... 
You could take a metal detector and who knows what you'd find. Well, not to be left out, we've got a ghost town in the state of Florida. Bullaville. Not much left today. I mean, there's the Coquina ruins of the sugar mill. A few wells, the spring house, and the crumbling foundations of Bulo's mansion. Quarters for that house, uh, his enslaved servants. The fields that used to be used to grow crops have been taken over by forest. You know, it was a once thriving sugar plantation. It was established in 1821 on a tidal creek on what is now the northeast coast of the state of Florida by Charles Wilhelm Bulo, wealthy merchant from Charleston, South Carolina. Using the labor of enslaved servants, he cleared 2,200 acres and planted sugar cane and cotton and rice and indigo. When he died in 1823, at the age of 44, ownership of the plantation transferred to his teenage son, John, who, under whom it began to prosper. John uh, built a sugar mill, a spring house, and a two-story mansion. The mansion was what was called Bulloville. He had traveled on the Halifax River in a fishing boat that carried guns and nets and tents and cooks. Seminole Indians would come to his plantation to trade. Well, his close relations with the Native Americans of the area became a problem in December 1835 with the outbreak of the Second Seminole War. Angry over the government's policy of forcible Indian removal, the Seminoles destroyed 16 plantations along the St. John and Halifax Rivers. Uh, troops under the command of Major Benjamin Putnam were sent from St. Augustine to protect the remaining plantations, but uh, Bulo didn't want their help. When Putnam and his soldiers entered Bulloville, Bulo fired a four-pound cannon at them. Putnam held Bulo under guard at his own house till January 23, 1836, when the troops, along with Bulo, retreated to St. Augustine in the face of increasingly hostile Native American attacks. And as you might guess, the Seminoles bear, uh, burned Bulaville to the ground. No, Bulo never returned. Died in Paris at the age of 27. Then in Utah, we've got the ghost town of Frisco. Once a wildly profitable mining town. It's now just a shadow of its former glory. All that's left of the ghost town today are a few dilapidated buildings, remnants of mine equipment, a beehive-shaped kilns once used to help smelt the silver. It was in September of 1875 when uh, two prospectors found silver ore in a remote, desolate area of the western Utah Territory. Within a year, the Frisco camp had sprouted up near Horn Silver Mine, which by the end of the decade was one of the richest in the world. Then the Utah Southern Railroad ran a line into Frisco in 1880, and the population boomed to almost 6,000. It was the commercial center for that region. Also became one of the most lawless mining camps in the West. More than a dozen saloons and alarmingly high murder rate, up to one or two a day, according to some sources. But there was a cave-in at the Horn Mine in February uh, 1885, which shook the ground in Milford, 17 miles to the east. And that cave-in doomed Frisco. Well, the mine restarted operations on a limited scale in less than a year, but it, nothing was ever really the same. Diminishing returns from the Horn coincided with Frisco's declining population. Of 1900, only 500 people left in town. By 1928, when Frisco lost its post office, the place was mostly abandoned. Well... 
As I said, there's not much left today. Just um, a few dilapidated buildings, some deserted mine equipment, the cemetery, and the ruins of five beehive-shaped uh, stone charcoal kills that we used to make fuel for the mine smelter. Well, from ghost towns, let's talk about some other, well, let's call them paranormal places, such as the Ohio State Reformatory in uh, Mansfield, Ohio. Ceased operations in 1990, and today brands itself as one of the most haunted prisons in the U.S. It may look familiar to uh, moviegoers. It was used as a location for the 1994 film The Shawshank Redemption. Well, we're going to start out talking about one of my favorite places, St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 in New Orleans, Louisiana. The spirit of Marie Laveau isn't the only one said to be haunting St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. Visitors have also reportedly seen the ghost of a sailor who wanders among the tombs, and there's another man who has been seen taking flowers from other grave sites. Now, the oldest cemetery in New Orleans dates back to 1789. When, because of concerns about the spread of disease, it was established outside the city's uh, fortifications. Now, barrels were initially underground, but the constant threat of flooding and the notoriously high water table prompted the local government to stipulate in 1803 that all internments had to be above ground. And among the maze-like cemeteries, the defining features are its uh, oven vaults which are walls of graves stacked one on top of the other, like drawers in a filing cabinet. Lower portion of the mausoleum's bottom rows are no longer visible because New Orleans is actually sinking into the ground. Area actually sits a few feet below sea level now. Among the notable grave sites in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 are the tombs of both the first mayor of New Orleans as well as the city's first African-American mayor, Ernest Marial. Another... Crypt safeguards remains of Homer Plessy, who was the plaintiff in the milestone 1896 Supreme Court decision that upheld the constitutionality of segregation based on the principle separate but equal. And there's also a famous grave that is so far still unoccupied. 2010, Nicholas Cage, who was 46 at the time, bought a white nine-foot pyramid in a cemetery for his future resting place. It's blank and featureless, save for the Latin inscription, Omnia ab uno, meaning everything from one. This enigmatic mausoleum has become a popular stop on tours of the graveyard. And maybe the most famous permanent resident of St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 is Marie Laveau, who, when she died at the age of 80 in 1881, was reputed to be the voodoo queen of New Orleans. She was a free woman of color. She was a hairdresser and a nurse who was renowned not only for her wisdom, but for Skill at treating physical ailments with herbal remedies. Reverential memorial in her hometown Times Picayune newspaper made no mention of voodoo, though there is a plaque on her tomb touting her connections to black magic and the occult. According to legend, Laveau's ghost of grant wishes made by believers who, in violation of the law, mark her tomb with three X's. Visitors reported all manner of supernatural experiences there, including mysterious touches, sudden illness, and voices coming from inside the tomb. And as I've said numerous times, when I was there, there was all kinds of offerings spread around her tomb. Um, there were credit cards stuffed in cracks. There was money. And I asked one of the local guides 
you know, why wouldn't that stuff disappear? And he said, nobody steals from Marie Laveau. She'll come back and get you. Apparently, everybody believes that. Well, from Los Angeles, excuse me, from New Orleans, let's go to Los Angeles. The Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Now, this sprawling graveyard opened in 1899 as the Hollywood Cemetery. Originally covered uh, 100 acres, but the association that uh, owned it sold some of its land in 1916 to Peralta Studios. A decade later, the property was purchased by Paramount, which sits on the cemetery's south side, and the park now sits on a manicured 62 acres, rechristened um, Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery in the late 1930s. 1998, after nearly falling into bankruptcy and closing its gates, it was reborn under its current name of Hollywood Forever Cemetery. More than 80,000 people buried in, on um, Hollywood Forever's green sculpted grounds, including some of the brightest stars of Tinseltown's golden age. Among the biggest names buried there, directors Cecil B. DeMille and John Huston, and actors Douglas Fairbanks and Judy Garland and Tyrone Power, Faye Ray, and no, Kong is not buried with her. And Rudolph Valentino, whose 1926 funeral was disrupted by crowds rushing police lines trying to grab pieces of floral arrangements sent in tribute to the matinee idol. And the notable grave sites belong to two of the founding members of the Ramones, the guitarist Johnny Ramone and bassist Dee Dee Ramone, as well as mobster Bugsy Siegel, who was uh, shot in the face by an unknown sniper. Beneath a small marker by the man-made lake on the cemetery's east side is the body of 25-year-old actress Virginia Rapp, whose death in 1921 at the hotel party in San Francisco led to manslaughter charges against the popular comedian actor Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Now, the silent screen star was eventually acquitted in 1922, but uh, as you might guess, this incident destroyed his career. Hollywood Forever Cemetery is reputed to be among the most haunted places in Los Angeles. Many of the apparitions of the spirits of famous residents. A wall separates the graveyard from the Paramount Studios lot that's been said to be frequented by the ghost of Valentino who's been spotted walking back and forth along this barrier. Studio itself is acquainted with the supernatural so much as that has been given the nickname Paranormal Paramount. People who work there say many of the hauntings of the studio have their origins in the cemetery next door. You never know what you're going to find when you wander around... When I lived in California, um, I heard all kinds of interesting stories. Well, from Paramount Studios, let's go to the Iroquois Theater in Chicago. The building was known as the Iroquois Theater. It's said to be haunted by the souls of patrons who died in a horrific fire that ravaged the interior in 1903. People who walked down the alley where a lot of folks fell to their deaths and reported feeling hands on their shoulders or heard their names being whispered. Now, when a ghost knows your name, it's time to go someplace else, let me tell you. December 30th, 1903, a malfunctioning spotlight started a fire on stage at Chicago's five-week-old Iroquois Theater. As the flame spread, many of the crowd of 1,700 bolted for the exits. But unfortunately, the exits weren't marked and most obscured by curtains. Patrons in the balcony were trapped by metal accordion gates, which had been locked to prevent people sneaking downstairs for better seats. 
And as the panic grew, someone backstage opened a door to the outside. Well, the resulting backdraft sent a ball of flame into the theater. That explosion was powerful enough to blow open an exit door. People in the balcony found fire escapes, but the stairs weren't finished, and there were no ladders to the ground. Roughly 120 people fell to their deaths in the alley below. In fact, more than 600 died in just 30 minutes. The worst theater disaster in U.S. history. Well, the early quarter was replaced in 1926 by the Oriental Theater, which showed both movies and live acts. 1996, it became exclusively a live theater, and 23 years later, it was renamed the Nederlander. Actors and crew members reported seeing shadow figures moving around in the balcony, and people have seen apparitions on the back stairs dressed in old-fashioned clothes. Actress uh, Anna Gasteyer, who uh, was in a production of Wicked at the Oriental in 2005 and 2006, claimed to see the ghost of a mother and her two children at the end of a backstage hall. It's been said that um, ghosts haunt whether they were the happiest or the most unhappy. And I guess being trapped in a burning building would be one of the most unhappy. Well, in western West Virginia, we've got the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. According to the building's current owners, the ghost of a handful of former patients still resides there, including a little girl named Lily who was born in the asylum and whose spirit reportedly often plays in one of the rooms. It was known originally as the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane when it admitted its first patient in 1864. This imposing Jacobean-style facility is one of the largest hand-cut stone masonry buildings in America. With its long, lambering wings and pastoral surroundings, it was the model institution for its time. When treatments for mental illness had become more humane, in Weston, patients who a few years earlier would have been chained to walls in crowded city jails were instead living in private rooms in a blue sandstone building in a bucolic campus. The facility's name was changed in 1913 to Weston State Hospital, and over the years its mission changed as well, with the focus on more on killing for the afflicted rather than rehabilitating them. Designed to accommodate 250 patients, Weston was holding more than uh, 2,400 people in the 1950s. When overcrowding was at its most severe, bed would be shared by several people sleeping in shifts. Well, Weston closed in 1994 when the state moved its patients into more modern facilities. Then the place stood empty for 14 years before it was bought for a million and a half and reopened in 2009 as a showcase attraction. Its current name is actually the original name given to it by the Virginia legislature in 1858. Some things never change. Well... Let's go to Salem, Massachusetts and talk about the Charter Street Cemetery. There been reports of voices and lights and southern drops in temperature at the cemetery believed to be the ghost of the accused witches condemned to death during the Salem Witch Trials. A number of photographs have been reportedly captured uh, and that show Hawthorne's ghost near the grave. Also known as the Old Burying Point, Charter Street's one of the oldest cemeteries in the country. Opened its gates in 1637, just seven years after the establishment of Boston King's Chapel Burying Ground. The uh, earliest uh, monument of the burying point, the simple slate headstone belonging to Dorothy Cromwell, who died in 1673. Prior to that, grave markers were made of wood, which decayed over time, as you might imagine. 
Among the 700 monuments at Charter Street, which saw its last burial in 1894, the remains of several significant historical figures. Richard Moore, an original pilgrim who came to America in 1620 at the age of six on board the Mayflower, and Simon Bradstreet, the last governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. Also, several people buried in the cemetery who were directly involved in the most infamous incident in the history of the town, the Salem Woods Trials of 1692 and 1693. More than 200 people are accused of practicing witchcraft and made to stand trial. 30 were found guilty, 19 of whom, that's 14 women and 5 men, were hung. John Haythorne, uh, one of the proceedings' most influential judges, as well as the great-great-grandfather Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The Scarlet Letter, is buried at Charter Street. Another judge from the trials, uh, Bartholomew Gedney, is also buried there. Small gravestone marks the final resting place of Mary Corey, the second wife of local farmer Giles Corey. Mary died in 1684, eight years before Giles was charged with being a witch. He refused to plead guilty and was executed in a field in 1692 by a method known as pressing. Heavy stones were put on top of a plank covering that was covering his body. Three days after Giles' death, his third wife Martha was hung for witchcraft. None of the bodies of the executed are buried at Charter Street. They were instead cast in unmarked graves near the gallows where they were hung. But it's believed their spirits are still haunting the resting place of the men that condemned them to death. Then in Mansfield, Ohio, we have the Ohio State Reformatory. Boasts a beautiful Romanesque exterior, but inside it's said to be much spookier. Visitors to the facility have reported seeing shadow figures, heard disembodied voices, and unexplained footsteps. A few even talked about being grabbed by unseen hands. Well, the world knows the gothic exterior of this massive stone building with its rooftop spires and high-arching windows from the 1994 film The Shawshank Redemption. That film starred Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, which was shot there three years after the play shut its doors. Opened in 1896, it was intended for delinquent young men in the ages of 14 and 28. It were first-time nonviolent offenders. But as the years passed, they became less of a reformatory, more of a maximum security prison. Facility ceased operations in 1990 due to overcrowding, inadequate, or outdated facilities. Most notably, it's tiny cells and inhumane conditions in general. Place was to, the plan was to tear the structure down, but it was unworkable. Some walls are 25 feet tall and 6 feet thick at the base. And some were up to a quarter of a mile long. Well, primarily thanks to Shawshank, the formatory has become a tourist attraction that welcomes more than 120,000 visitors a year. It allows millions of folks to become acquainted with the place's ties to the paranormal. Some 150,000 inmates passed through the prison during its 94 years in operation. And the ghosts of several still apparently roam the halls, as does the spirit of a guard who jabs visitors with his nightstick. Voices and footsteps have been heard on the third floor of the administration building. The facility offers a host of paranormal tour options, including uh, one for professional ghost hunters, if there is such a thing. Well, San Antonio, Texas, we got the San Fernando Cathedral. You know, visitors have reported seeing the ghost of a man dressed in black and hooded spirits dressed like monks. Been 
claims of seeing faces in the on the rear wall, one of them belonging to Jim Bowie, who was married five there five years before he died defending the Alamo. Well, it was founded in 1731, located on the geographic center of the city. Parish of San Fernando is the oldest continuously functioning religious community in Texas. It's undergone several expansions and renovations in the years since its first cornerstone was laid in 1738. It survived a flood in 1819 and a fire in 1828. During the Battle of the Alamo in 1836, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana used it as a lookout, flying a red flag for the from it, the signals of the Texans hold up on the mission, they'd get no mercy from him. By 1840, the church was in such bad shape, the half its roof was missing. Twenty, I know who probably put it on. Uh, 28 years later, after essential repairs had been made, San Fernando underwent an extensive renovation. New design included Gothic revival architecture, three entrances, a gabled roof, and twin bell towers, and buttresses. Walls of the original church are part of the sanctuary of uh, today's building, which is why San Fernando claims to be the oldest cathedral in the state. It was actually elevated to cathedral status in 1874. When San Fernando's altar was moved during renovations in 1936, workmen found a small pile of bones. The archbishop at the time ordered the remains to be placed in a crypt near the entrance with a marker that said it was the final resting place of Jim Bowie, Davy Crockett, and other Alamo heroes. That claim was based on the 1889 recollection of an elderly farmer, a former Texas uh, military officer who said he'd collected the charred remains. Of course, the claims were never verified. Since 1936, San Fernando's become a hotbed of paranormal activity. Visitors reported seeing shadow figures and orbs in their photos. Others have seen the ghost of a galloping white horse. I'm sure somebody's going to say it's been ridden by none other than Jim Boy. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back in our next show and talk about more strange, unusual places. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great weekend.